Welcome to episode 29 of the Live, Lift, Love podcast, PEDs, Positive Enriching Discussions. I'm your host, Clifford Janice. Today's episode is titled, Haiti Tree Project. You can find me on IG at Gults Conditioning, and you can listen to the Live, Lift, Love podcast on SoundCloud, Google Play, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and YouTube. Be sure to like, subscribe, share, and if you visit the Live, Lift, Love podcast on the Gults Conditioning website, please be sure to leave a comment. Back again, excited to talk with this new guest who was someone who I met indirectly in like 2016 and just were able to kind of reconnect and, uh, you know, I'll give a bit of the background, but first I'll bring her in. Hey, Karen. Hi, how are you, Clifford? I'm doing good. How's your, how's your week flowing? Pretty good. Getting used to this new job that I have with a green stand. Yeah. I'll tell you about that later though. (laughs) Okay, cool, cool. <laughs> um, so yeah, so I think in I think it was twenty either twenty sixteen or twenty fifteen, I reached out to you. I might even show how I found out about the Haiti Tree Project. Actually, I, I do know it was from Enbois. The um, I think they started out doing maybe watches initially or wooden wrist beads, I believe. They're using all kinds of resources from wood products in the Caribbean to make right. jewelry. And watches. Yeah, it's really fascinating work. And I think initially it was just the the beads, but then they expanded it. And then I saw that they were partnering with you in the the Haiti Tree Project. And it was going through your site. And at the time I was doing a lot of, well, still am, editorial and writing. And I reached out because I wanted to see if I could support in some type of editorial capacity. You, you know, you replied right away. And I, you know, I respectfully, I kind of just backpedaled. Um, I think there's too much going on in life and not feeling centered. I had the, the right intent, but I didn't have the, the energy to kind of follow through. And I think I reached out to you either last week or two weeks ago on a new project that I've been working on and, you know, reconnected. And, you know, here we are. So I definitely am excited to talk about the Haiti Tree Project. Excited to have you share Every, anything and everything that you've been doing and just kind of elaborate on the mission, the goal, and how people can kind of support, you know, the, the work and the effort that you're doing. Yeah, this is pretty exciting. So to start, just want to learn about you, you know, your background, where you're from, and initial steps that kind of led you to, I guess, Haiti initially. I think that's what we'll kind of break at. So, what you know, whatever you're willing to share. Yeah, um, when I went to college, 1993, 1997, I had left a very secular background where I was surrounded by a lot of religions in the South, you know, well, you know, just the main one, the, the Southern Christian religion. And I was right. Catholic and I, I grew up very secular, like not involved with spirituality at all. And I went to um, the mountains in Asheville to go to college. And there was a lot of extreme diversity and the Christian faith, and then there was a lot of uh, other diverse groups like yoga groups. And after experimenting with several, I ended up really clinging on to a yoga group that was called Ananda Marga, is called Ananda Marga, Universal Relief Team. And they actually teach yoga and then go all over the world doing relief work, but not evangelizing, just following their faith, meditating, and kind of moving through the motions of giving love to others. And I found that to be really refreshing compared to a lot of other um, spiritual paths. 
because there wasn't a dogma. Well, you could be from any religion and join their group and become part of this mission of moving forward in the faith of God and and uh, kind of they always said turning your wheels forward while you're expressing love and and just doing the work of God by just keep on moving forward and give love in everything you do, kind of like a uh, like your mantra, you know. Right. So it was pretty exciting, and that led me to meet people who were doing relief work all over the world. And I got to know a doctor in my community who was also connected with Ananda Marga, and he said, "You want to come on a medical mission with me to Haiti?" And I said, "Yes." And that was in 1997. And I got off the plane, and the first thing that happened was a flood of kids just came running up to me because I had an a-, a half-eaten apple in my hand, and they were and they literally scraped my arm up. Um, just trying to street kids who were trying to get that food and me being having grown up in Raleigh, North Carolina, I had no idea this kind of thing existed in the world. Um, so it was an eye opening moment, eye opening week, um, seeing the kinds of things people struggle with in other places. And it, it just really opened my eyes. And, you know, I kept that in my heart. We came back after a week or so kept that in my heart that I was always going to support the work that they're doing in Haiti. And, you know, I met some really good friends through Ananda Marga and through school. And um, years later, ended up going back and spend, spending three years living in Haiti, doing a, fulfilling a grant that we, that Ananda Marga got for hurricane relief. And that's when I really started to dig in and like, see how people are trying to solve the problems in Haiti. The, um, desperation of poverty there because of, I mean, I want to go ahead and jump ahead because of deforestation is so severe, you know? So where I lived, there was nothing left. There was mostly cactus. There hadn't been trees there for hundreds of years, I think. Um, At least a forest, you know, there's trees here and there around the springs, but that's it. Anyway, I was doing water filtration and we were doing schools and, you know, we were trying to help people um, find their basic needs. And, um, yeah, at that time, I fell in love with one of the people we worked with, and he eventually became my husband. And during that time, we traveled around Haiti together, and he showed me where he was from in the South. And he told me that when he was a kid, and he was only 26 at the time, he told me that when he was a kid, only 25 years before, that there was a forest there. And he grew up. Um, just throwing rocks up in the trees to get the mangoes. You know, there was fruit everywhere. There was, you could find anything anywhere you needed all day long. There was no need for money because the trees provided so much food. And when I went there, it was, there was chunks of forest here and there, but it was pretty much destroyed. And people were living in the sun wondering where the birds went, you know? So that's how I got into Haiti. (laughs) I don't know (laughs) what, so what what was your perspective shift? I mean, you, you said, you know, you grew up in Raleigh for, and, you know, experiencing the, I, I hate the word poverty. Um, I guess the the unique life dynamic of the, the children and people of, of Haiti, what, what did that change in terms of your perspective? I guess in relation to yourself and, you know, other people. Yeah, well, I grew up like with a Germanic background. My parents very much into material things and conservation, almost like, um, you know, stemming from the depression, just saving every penny and 
holding on to your material goods and making money. And it was all about insurance and how are you going to pay for your retirement? And, you know, <laughs> and then you go to Haiti, it's like, and you join a groups like Ananda Marga and you experience people who don't have those mentalities, you know, it's living in the now. Um, I mean, the Haitian people, their poverty or their, the, the lack of material goods that they have doesn't mean that they're not happy. Like the people are so full of life there and so full of love and right. activity and, and they just bring so much enjoyment to every moment. Um, yeah. So my perspective changed tremendously. I mean, I stopped, I started living in the now when I joined this group, you know, when I started traveling and doing these things. I mean, after the three years I was with Ananda Marga in Haiti, I didn't work with Ananda Marga anymore because I wanted to, because I had my husband and we were having kids and we started our own reforestation effort. But, um, yeah, I mean, I left the mentality of we have to work towards our own material profits for the end of our life to live that nice retirement. And I just yeah. shifted completely over to, I just want to help these, I just want to help see what I can do with my resources to make a difference for what's, you know, for the devastation that's happened um, it's, it's in a, their lives there. It's an interesting dynamic. Um, you, know, you talked about people in Haiti being full of love because, and I mean, it, I think it is because of the, the lack of material goods and the consumption and the, right. you know, there's a bigger connection to family. There's a big, bigger connection to community. Right. And you know, here in the in the, you know Western philosophy and ideology, we're we're searching for that. We're searching for love and connection, but we're doing it in all the wrong ways because Thank we're you. Yeah. <laughs> conditioned with. Like we talked about screens before, right? We right. have all these screens, and we're looking for love through the screens versus making these you know in person connections. And you know, and I. I bash social media to an extent but there's also a there's also growth and there's also a lot that it's bringing a lot of connection that it's allowing especially these past few months um with with covid hitting mutual aid funds the um fridges town fridges that are popping up so there's a lot of good work being done right but right i still think without that deep one-on-one -on -one connection you know we're, we're still lacking you know we need the the physical touch we need the um the so in the previous episode I had a, a neurologist on and he was saying he took he brought up the point that when people are together I, sorry he was talking about mimicking behavior and when people are together their brain activity syncs up and starts operating at the same time mm -hmm. and I thought about that in terms of the need for connection the need for love like you know that vibration that energy it builds it creates it, it allows us to kind of push forward and do more. Where you know, go back to the screens, there's a there's a leap and bound we kind of have to get over to really connect and really understand and communicate with people. Yeah, yeah. My son, so, um, you know, here in the states, he's got, you know, a f he sees people at school. You know, they don't hold hands, they don't hug. They're just peers. You know, we come home, we live far away from his you know, uh, the kids that he sees at school. So we don't see them outside of school. And then the kids in the neighborhood, you know, uh, they have a play date here and there. It's very official. It's like, we'll meet on Saturday between one and three, you know, <laughs> that's kind of thing. Be, right? and, and, that, and that's, you know, that's what it is. Yeah. And, and then now we've got this one friend who he goes over to his house a lot and they, 
and they go back and forth. And that's been really good for them. But the difference is, you know, in Haiti, you just, we, we go into the community where my husband grew up and all of a sudden he's got 30, 40, 50, it feels like family members constantly carrying him on the, <laughs> you know, constantly pulling him around in all different directions with their arms over his shoulders and, you know, grabbing the soccer ball, going out to the ravine to kick it around. You know, it could be a rag soccer ball, you know, uh, right, right. and, and grabbing the horse, taking him up to the mountain to visit somebody else, taking him to take the goats out, taking him, you know, it's spending a lot of time feeling hungry because the food's not ready. I mean, all kinds of experiences that make you feel real, you know? Right. I don't know the words. I think you have the words for it more than I do, but you, it, yeah. I, I grew up with a very unique dynamic, but I, mean, I feel like a lot of people who, a lot of inner city children, black children, West Indian children, just kind of have some type of unique home and family dynamic that isn't the standard um I guess the standard that we see on TV, and granted, that's a lot of a lot of people, maybe, but my experience is mostly with other Black people, so that's you know that's always my, my perspective. Mm-hmm. And so I I have this very large large family. I'm number nine out of all of my father's children, mm-hmm. and only me, me and my sister are biological. Mm-hmm. And I have a bunch of half brothers and half sisters who I don't communicate with anymore. It's been very limiting. I've ha- I've had a very limit limiting familial experience. I've only had one grandfather who I've been aware of. Haven't met any, any of my other grandparents. So there's been there's always been like this natural reserve in, re- reservation in me rather. Uh-huh. And my mother brought her her brother and two of his children to Haiti, and for me it was like this. An immense wave of love automatically. Like, you know, this is blood family that I've never yes. had. Yes. Um, so, you know, here's this outpouring of love and recognition. And, you know, how can I, you know, how can I help? How can I support? But still, you know, I still have my reservation because of who I am as a person. Right. Um, and, and like seeing that and knowing that capability, it, it's, it's always interesting because although I may, f- or may I may showcase myself as someone who's, bit more reserved and not as loving as people would want. There is this innate desire once you kind of connect with people to to support and do and be happy that, hey, we, we have a we have a connection to kind of build and grow off of. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I lived in the um northern part of Haiti in the desert region. Uh there was this big community there that basically adopted us when we had nothing before we had our grant. And they would, you know, bring us crackers and bring us leftovers, bring us their pots and pans for us to use. Um, and we became close with the people, the women in the community, especially who were, you know, taking care of us like we were their children. And once in a while, I would, I would go to Port-au-Prince and come back. And this one lady who was my age, she would always run up to me and just grab me with this big hug and her, you know, and she'd just be shaking my boobs everywhere with her hands, just like, whoa, I'm just so happy to see you. Whoa. I mean, if, if people can understand, like, what's that like being a foreigner and just feeling so, <laughs> it didn't feel uncomfortable at all. It felt very natural for, right. you know, this kind of hug to be happening because that's just the way it is there. You're just, everything's so close and, and, and out there. Weird. Yeah. Right, yeah, I was saying it's it's weird, um, not weird. It's interesting that that the dynamics because me as a child growing up with that experience, I grew up in Flatbush, Brooklyn, which is predominantly West Indian. So the uh-huh. 
there are places where people are, where it, you know, it feels like a, a market, right? There are street corners where women are selling um, cashews. They're selling, I can't, even, I can't remember the names right now. Um, but just like spices, apis. Yeah, um, yeah. What do you call that? Uh, it'll come to me eventually. But they have lava pen. <laughs> right, 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 right. Um, I forgot all the boiled chest, boiled seeds, <laughs> big yeah. nuts. Yeah, and I, you know, I remember being a child and just growing up with and either walking with my mother or my grandfather and mm-hmm. going to these places with them, and then you know, seeing that communal love and seeing like you know, like how do you how do you know this person? Like I've I've never met them before, and I, mm-hmm. I'm supposed to know everyone you know, but just seeing the love and energy, you know, they call my say call my mother by her first name, they call my grandfather by his first name. And it's just this love and energy that that's there and present, and you know it's it's holding on to what at least I feel it's holding on to that community aspect that they they had in Haiti. Yeah, um, yeah. And me growing up in the in the United States, the, I'm not used to that. It's 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 for, it's foreign to me because it's it. I mean, it is a foreign concept. It's you know it's it's Haiti, it's Haiti's uh, effort, it's Haiti's community. And here I am. This is like a weird new dynamic to me, though it, it shouldn't be. Right. But now I go back to Brooklyn occasionally, and you know, periodically I you know, I visit the old neighborhood, and it's just different. Like I don't I don't see them out there anymore. There's mm-hmm. been this huge, um, I guess, cultural shift, and and I guess in terms of you know what that neighborhood has become. So I I, I, I don't know where, where I'm going with that. I guess I just just reflecting on being a child and. I guess yeah. maybe the grown disconnect of you know being being in the states and what that how that kind of takes away from culture and community little by yeah. little. Yeah. yeah, the melting pot is the toss salad is the Walmart and McDonald's <laughs> instead. Right, 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 you right. know, um, my husband, um, my husband's from Haiti, you know, from the south, and he came here with me when he was twenty seven. And now when he goes back, he's not, he doesn't really feel a hundred percent comfortable because everyone knows he's got a job in the States. Yeah. So he, he has money. Yeah. They think he has money. He, he built a house there now. Like we built a house there, but he's almost like nervous about going back now. He doesn't feel as comfortable as he used to because he feels like all of his heart, his hard, hard work is going to have to be constantly begged for. He won't be seen right. as who he used to be seen as. And, right. you know, that's our reality for him, um, you know. And another shift, a big shift has happened in Haiti that people keep telling me about. There used to be this really strong vigilante system where people just don't steal from each other and become really taboo to be accused of taking from one another. And then this culture that used to be really strong with high morals, it, it, it's changing. People more freely take now, and it's become more and more scary even in the province to go and expect that culture that was there when I was there, you know, just eight years ago, if you know what I mean. Yeah, um, like my, my dad has a house in Haiti also that he mm-hmm. built. He used to go there at least twice a, twice a year, but with everything going on, I mean, he, he, I don't think he he – I think he went last year. Last year was the last year he went, him and my mother. And, you know, they, they enjoy themselves. They escape. They get to be with old friends and family and just connect, you know, people from other towns coming to visit them. 
Mm-hmm. And it's a very, for them, it's nostalgic, you know, being back home and kind of being able to experience their country, but from a different perspective. Yeah. Uh, a few episodes ago, I, I was talking with uh, two other first generation Americans and I was I brought up the, the, the idea of that my mother left Haiti, my parents left Haiti to come to the United States for opportunity, you know, all that, all the jazz, the American dream everyone talks about. Right. And I, and, and now I wonder, or maybe the, the idea hit me that I, I want to imagine, and I'll, I'll probably ask her eventually, if the reason she left hoping that when she got older, the country would be better so that she can go back and like truly enjoy it. Like their, their goal and their dream was to you know, spend one month here and then spend the other colder months down in Haiti, but with COVID going on and just with right. the economy and the country, like there's, the, that dream is, is kind of gone. And on my end, I, I worry about the the disconnect and the the, the gap. And the, the, I guess going back to like the, the screens and the disconnect between me and other family members, like my mother interacts with people. She sends them um, the big drums full of whatever you know whatever right 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 clothing and Mm -hmm. you know they sell it and they have their own little business and it keeps them afloat Mm -hmm. but you know she passes that's like who who, like who's gonna pick up the work right who's gonna who's gonna pick up the work to keep sending those things out so it's something that's on my mind in terms of like okay like what's my responsibility to to haiti what's my responsibility like how do i honor my, my parents how do i honor their work and how do i keep supporting the bloodline and family that that that's in need um and it, you know the again i just kind of think about the american lifestyle and how it just conditions us to i mean to your earlier point just focus on the material goods you know focus on the screens focus on just getting money and doing what you can and living your life while you can but you know that's not my reality that's that's not my shift of perspective i'm more into spirituality and focusing on on love and good energy and like finding ways to connect and know do more for other people so it's something that's that's constantly on my mind um and i guess you know talking especially talking with you about the the haiti tree project it's it's something new to kind of get excited about and it gives me new vigor to be like okay like there there are other ways to support you know you know just just, like there's always resources it's fine fine get in when you fit in to support yes yes and you know, I think that the people in Haiti understand that, yes, while we can provide them with material goods, they can provide us with a sense of community when we go there and give us the, you know, that rich culture that they have and they're proud of. How did they, um, I, f- I forgot the name of the the yoga. Ananda Marga. Ananda Marga. Ananda Marga, okay. Universal Relief Team is the full name of the relief sector of it. It started in India in the 70s. And during that, you know, hippie movement, it came to the US in that era. You know, and a lot of people that are, were my, you know, somewhat older than me and my professors and things and peers, they all, you know, a lot of them were in this in Asheville and uh, in Asheville, North Carolina. And so, you know, just one of the many organizations that had a guru back in the 60s and 70s, (laughs) you know, branched off. What was unique about this one is that they, they don't just teach the yoga meditation and music and how to do a spiritual life. They also do the relief work, which is a huge part of what they do is to say, okay, now that we have this ability to 
see the world in the now and march forward with whatever is needed around us now. Um, let's take it. Let's take it. And how, how do the people of Haiti respond to Ananda Marga? Um, they have Ananda Marga has schools where they teach them some really beautiful songs, but uh, people in Haiti love songs. So the kids are happy to do the songs as far as um, meditation. We usually did that on our own, like our group that was from Ananda Marga, we would do that on our own. And we didn't really ask people to join us. They were welcome to, and not many, many people did. They were attracted to the drumming. Um, they, yeah, I mean, how did they respond? We were just radiating love, and that's what they responded positively to. We didn't really get into the this, the whole philosophies behind Ananda Marga with the people there much. Right. I was just imagining that, I mean, yoga, meditation are just not, they're not big in, um, I guess, the black diaspora. It's, and, uh, you know, I, I always think about, the origin of a lot of things like, you know, Africa, Af a lot of African culture is based in, I mean, what we call meditation, but it's, you know, it's chanting for them. It's you know, music, it's the drums. There was a deeper connection to the, I guess the various gods or Lords that they worship and, yeah. you know, Western ideology and Christian, Christian faith is kind of what Jesus Christ and, uh, you know, the almighty God. So I was, I was, interested to, to know if, you know, if they kind of participated in meditation, but, you know, going back to our original point, maybe they, they don't need it, right? Because they have the abundance of love. I mean, they, 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 they have, the, they already have the ability to be present. They already have the ability to kind of be in the now. And yeah. I, I feel like the people in Haiti that I lived with, um, you know, in 2004, 2008, they they have, half of them had their voodoo life and, um, they had the this deep sense of spirituality of the spirits that are in the world, especially at night. Right. <laughs> and um, everyone's always has a, a strong fear and love for God, and is always mentioning God at the end of every sentence. You know, we'll see you soon, God willing. Right. But it was a more real way of saying it, and. And then the other half of the people were evangelized, and a lot of them were Catholic, a lot of them were Protestant. And um, they were, you know, very much behaving as you would imagine after a Christian group has come in and taken over a community spiritually, <laughs> right. you know, dressing in that way and speaking in that way and making sure they follow the rules exactly as a Christian um, evangelist church would normally teach in Africa, similar, very similar. Um yeah, so there's those two sides of society. It was very interesting. Right. <laughs> Do you have any memorable moments from being down there? <laughs> I mean, lots of them. I, I, I mean, <laughs> mostly from that time frame, mostly when you were initially there um, with An Ananda Marga. One of the biggest chapters in my life there was the fact that the poverty was so hard that there was this mother who had just had a baby, clearly a single mom, like a street woman who didn't have anywhere to go um, 
or I don't know if she had the wherewithal to go all the way home and just get help. But anyway, she lived on the street and she had a baby. And one day I saw her walking when I was driving to Gwenaive down this long desert road, dirt road, middle of nowhere, up and down mountains. And I, and I saw her carrying this baby and the baby's arms were hanging down on its side, you know, just flailing as she walked. And I stopped the car and asked her to get in and say, where are you going and everything. And and long story short, I mean, we tried and tried and tried to help her. We tried to give her food. We tried to uh, um, help her feed her baby by feeding her. But we kept finding more and more that she was already mentally so distraught from her life that she couldn't handle having that child. And she ended up just leaving, she kept leaving it with us and not taking it home like back to wherever she stayed in the village. And eventually that baby became like taken in by the four of us from different places in the world. We had a couple people from Europe, a couple from the United States, um, you know, and there was a team of six of us and we, and I became like the, the baby's mother for a few years and the kitchen lady also became the, the baby's mother, the kitchen lady who, who cooked our food every day, beloved, lady named Leone, she would take care of her during the day when my job got busier and busier. And um, eventually she took her in. But the baby came to us, you know, just star- completely starved. And what could we do? The mo- You know, um, it was an interesting dynamic to care for a baby at the age I was without having a husband. And, and the village really tried to support us on that. And I didn't want to see the baby go to the United States because I don't know, I felt like the richness of Haiti just as she deserved to stay in that rich community and have a happy life. And to this day, we're still supporting her. The organization is uh, making sure she has a, a rich life with, with the lady named Leone. Yeah. How old, is, how old is, is she now? She's, well, how old is she now? She was born in 2003, 2004. She's probably born in 2004. So she's, yeah, she's 16. I haven't really kept up with her much because of the telephone connection. Has been really hard to keep up with where she is exactly. But yeah, um, she's in her teens. <laughs> yeah. Wow, that's, I mean, that, that's, that's beautiful, right? Yeah. Like, and I mean, I, I can imagine, you know, connecting even whenever you do get the opportunity, it's a very humbling and yeah, I guess humbling experience. Um, just knowing, you know, knowing the full backstory that does she, does she know like the full backstory of the, how she became, how she ended up living with Leone? Yeah, I'm sure she does because um, my close friends, some of them are still there in Haiti and they, they go out to the community all the time and they're still her close family, so to speak, you know. Um, it was interesting because of the way that our approach to parenting when she was a baby, you know, constantly carrying her everywhere and talking to her and showing her things and teaching her and feeding her nutritious foods. She immediately became one of the most active and brightest children in the little preschools and schools they have there. And always coming home with so much, you know, enthusiasm. The teachers would always say how amazing she was. 
And I could tell the first day I saw her because of the smile on her face when I looked at her with her arms just falling to her side. She looked straight in my eyes when she was only, I don't know, six months old, maybe nine months old, but very small. And she looked in my eyes with such dedication and this little smile when I first saw her the first moment. Just so much life in there that, that you know, didn't want to turn off. Anyway, lots of memories, lots of memories. I mean, we lived in a tent inside of a big warehouse. We lived in different, like each of us had our own little tent inside of this big um, dilapidated, broken down church that was once used by the French probably a hundred years before. This got big concrete floor and that's it. Just It's like a giant shack. And we lived in that. And at times we lived in the tree, in the desert trees that were just above that. And we spent a lot of time like hanging out at night in the hot springs. It was like a, a big mud hole that had been covered by the French years ago and had a little shelter. Um, it's called Souchon, you know, the hot source is the little town where we stayed. And um, we would soak in the mud and, and just cover ourselves in. And I've got a picture of myself like covered in mud, hanging out in the daytime with my pregnant belly you know, <laughs> and <laughs> covered in black mud <laughs> from head to toe. You can imagine what that looks like on my wall. Um, <laughs> and uh, yeah, I mean, people used to play jokes on me. Um, I'd go to the market and the the women there would be, you know, hanging out in these really old clothes. They looked like they hadn't had showers for days. You know, a lot of these women would just be walking for hours all day long, eight hours to the desert, sit down with their pile of mangoes or whatever it is they trade on in the floor of the market on the ground and spread their things out on a sheet. And then the next day they go to the next village and the next village. They had four villages on their route before they ever went home again for the weekend or for their two days off. And then they'd start all over again. So, you know, they'd be, you know, just very laid back people just Walking me walk by, watching me walk by, and just saying all kinds of things. Hey, hey, white lady, what you doing today? Come over and talk to me. Talk to me. I'm going to teach you a song today, you know. And they'd be teaching me this song. Um, yeah, they'd be teaching me the song that I thought was all about for kids. And me and the kids would run around singing a song about how how we want to have a bite of coconut, you know. Let's go have some coconut. Time to go have some coconut. Bum ti moso So I'll go around and sing that song and the kids and I would have a great time singing a song about the coconuts coming off the trees and having some bites. And then a Christian came up to me one time, this Christian lady who was in charge of the women's group and and she walked with me up to my house and said, you know what, you need to really stop singing that song. It's not appropriate. <laughs> And, you know, that's why the women were having so much fun. And they did this kind of thing to me all the time. They just had so much fun. You know, I mean, you understand what I'm saying. It was an inappropriate song because coconut means something else in Creole that I didn't realize. Right. So, you know, they, they had their fun. The ladies just laughing. You can imagine. <laughs> yeah. I mean, yeah. That, that, that's kind of the... um yeah, I think that, that's kind of like the the nature of uh, of I want, how do I phrase this? Like I'm I'm used to my mother joking with me and teasing me a little bit, uh-huh. and I think that's that's very much part of um, 
I'll say the Haitian experience, but for me, it also kind of just feels like the black experience. Mm-hmm. It's joking, messing around, like, you know, we'll, you know, we'll tease you, we'll get on you, but at the end of the day, it's all love, right. you know, and if you come to us and confront us, you know, we'll laugh and you'll laugh too. Right. And then you, 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 you know, I got you and then we'll move on and we'll build a relationship from that. I uh, feel like that's a lot of the, uh, that's kind of the, the dynamic, right? Yeah. Well, it makes you close when people tease you like that and, and like you get caught in what you've been doing. It, it, it's yeah. fun for everybody. It's fun for everybody. <laughs> yeah. Um, so yeah, let, let's transition into the, the Haiti tree. Project. Yeah. Yeah, um, yeah. 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 I guess the, the inception of it and you know, like w- what was the, the what was, what was the beginning process for you, like in realizing that this is something that needed to be done? Well, the Ananda Marga Universal Relief Team, the whole philosophy that we were trying to, uh, ex- how do you say, um, realize in the northern part of Haiti, where it was the desert, is to help everyone meet their basic needs. Like, And the, the grants would constantly be coming in for one specific thing, like go build a school or go fix the canal or go empty the salt mines. Well, my friend who's from Bulgaria, who would, who would, who was in charge, he was the director at the time, and he, he would just take all those grants and he would just take all that money and just make all kinds of things with it, not just what he said he was going to do. He would buy old cars instead of paying the rental fee. He would, we would live in a shack and tents instead of paying for a home. You know, all kinds of things that they expected to be in the budget we didn't actually use for those expensive items that other organizations would normally do to have a compound, et cetera. So w- the mission was to ha- meet everyone, help me help everyone meet all of their basic needs. So we would build a school and a clinic and fix the canals and restart the salt mines and, 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 and until every aspect of society is fulfilled. Yes, we tried to reforest too, but again and again and again in the forest, that was, in the desert, that was very difficult because, you know, the soil was gone and there's no rain. And, um, yeah. So when I went to the South and I realized, wow, if they could just get the trees back that they lost just 20, 30 years ago, then they would have all their food back again. And so what we did in the beginning was we took all the, all the main leaders from all the villages around and we, called all the men and women who wanted to come to a big meeting and we talked to them about what's happened to their environment and what the effects are. And, and, you know, it was interesting. Like half the group was very negative. Like, what are you going to give us? What are you going to give us? You know, uh, we don't have anything. We're in a land of misery and there's nothing we can do. There's no way we can save ourselves. You have to save us, you know? Um, bring us, bring us something, you know, give us some jobs. And then we always found maybe 20% of the people were super positive and they wanted to, to march with us and fight for these, to bring the trees back. And those people we grabbed onto and we put them in committee, put them into committees and we started the non, the organization, local organization in Haiti. And we, just grab those positive people and just let them decide what their community needed and how they were going to run it and what kind of trees and um, who was in charge, let them decide everything they, you know, and it was a fascinating process. We, we met an amazing pastor named John Nerva 
who not only was a pastor, but he's a veterinarian assistant. He's a um, uh, agronomist technician, and he's still my best right-hand person today in Haiti after many, after 10 years. And um, he would lead people. He would go to communities and just inspire them to want the birds back, inspire them to want to take the trees home and plant them. Because um, it's easy to grow a whole bunch of seedlings. And that's what we found out in the beginning. It's easy to grow a whole lot of seedlings, um, like maybe 10 cents a tree, get them started. But it's so hard to get people to want to come and take them home and actually get them in the ground and then grow them and take care of them. It's not easy. Everyone will do a few mangoes, a few mango trees, but to get people to blanket their land with trees that have been cut down years ago, I mean, it's very difficult because of the uh, the labor. It's so much labor and people are in the mood to survive. They want to find a way to survive today. And you ask them to go do something like dig a whole bunch of holes for trees that probably won't survive. <laughs> it's really hard. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so you used the word ne- negative earlier and I, I get it. I mean, I, I don't, I think it's, it's just dealing with experiences dealing with foreigners, right? I mean, mm-hmm. it's untrustworthiness. It's, fear it's i guess it's a general understanding of what has happened historically in different countries in different countries when foreigners come and say they want you to do this or they you know they need your help with doing that mm-hmm. you, you feel a lot of countries a lot of people feel like they get the short end of the end of the stick or that they're being manipulated mm-hmm. um so yeah i mean i i, I totally get get the, get that response it's it's <laughs> Yeah, it's like all things, right? Like you, it's difficult to mo- motivate any group of people in any aspect. You're always gonna have. Uh, I feel like you're always gonna have a larger, pers- a larger percentage of people who are willing to push back. But yeah. you know, you'll, you'll get the, the like you said, twenty percent. Maybe that's five, ten, fifteen people who yeah. are really about it, right? And who are really willing to do the work. I mean, I feel like that's just all, all part of work in society. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And the politicians that I work with are constantly like, we've got to pay people something or we won't get the majority, you know, and that's who they're talking about. Those people who are, who are there to get something for today and they're not worried about the overall vision. And I get that, you know, people do have to survive today. And, and there is a lot of fear, a lot of fear that they're being exploited, a lot of fear we're going to promise something that we don't follow through the, with. Um, so we just drop in and say, we're going to do all this for you and then don't show up again. That's their experience. So, and, and that kind of ties into the reason why they want to live in the now. Like, give, give me the money now because tomorrow, it's not, pro- it's not promised that you're going to come back tomorrow mm-hmm. and fulfill, fulfill your word. But on the other hand, too, I feel like when, they, when a lot of people look around and they saw how easy it was for everyone to chop down all their trees over the last 30 years, like they just kind of gave up. Like they don't see how it could come back. You know? Yeah. I mean, absolutely. I mean, that kind of ties into, um, I know one of your key points is like agroforestry. Mm -hmm. I mean, there there isn't the the awareness or the the knowledge of the benefits and the long-term use, you know, going back to the idea of just living in the present, Mm -hmm. like, you know, you know, I need to make money now. So if I guess if cutting down this tree is going to keep the lights on and the food on for two days longer, then that's just what I have to do, unfortunately. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And our agronom, John Nerva, who 
agronomist, John Nerva, who is also the pastor, he, um, over these last 10 years, we've sent him to village after village of to visit people and talk about, you know, the importance of bringing their trees back and finding those motivated people who wanted to, to grow a lot. So we always sent him to a village, to a church on a, on a Saturday and brought 500 mango trees. And people would get very excited about trees and they'd take them home and they planted them and they survived 90% because of how popular those Madame Francique mango trees are. They're just really delicious. I'm sure you're familiar. Best mangoes in the world. Yeah, 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 yeah. So, you know, when I found how successful that is, we focused on that from for a long time, just with the donation money that came in to the Haiti Tree Project website. I would just send it to him to go out and buy a lot of mangoes, mango seedlings, and just take them to people who are asking for trees. And it has a beautiful, simple mission. And um, yeah, that that has been a lot of what we've done over the years with our donation money is to send out that education along with a lot of really valued trees to make sure that it's simple for them to survive and nothing's wasted. Yeah, and that's been a big chapter of what we've done. The Live, Lift, Love podcast is brought to you by the Black Excellence Shop. Shop our Black Excellence calendar and journal bundle. 366 days of creativity, motivation, and spirituality. And shop our Black Excellence Daily app for Android and iOS. BlackExcellenceDaily.com. Yeah, I mean, like, look, looking on your website, um, I mean, the main point is what 2% of Haiti's forests remain. Right. And. Some of some of your statistics from the past few years. Let me just, let me pull them up. Uh, throughout the seven years, throughout the last seven years, over seventy eight thousand trees have been distributed to mm-hmm. local landowners. On average, ninety percent of fruit, fruit trees and sixty percent of hardwood trees have thrived in their new home. Mm-hmm. I, I want to backtrack a little bit. So you saw saw the issue with deforestation. Mm-hmm. What, what were the, the the next steps for you? The history of deforestation, I mean, the next steps were, like I said, bringing the community together, forming a committee, and really listening to what people wanted, and then just catering to that, just saying, okay, well, go ahead, I have I have $1,000 that came in, go ahead and do that, you know, um, and usually it meant they wanted to grow their own trees in the nursery, and sometimes because of the the season because of the season or the rain or whatever, we would buy them from a nursery and then we would bring them to people. But um, sorry, can you tell me your question again? I'm, I lost track of. No, it's, it's okay. Yeah. It's probably on my end also. Um, I'll transition. I, I'll, what, what kind of trees did they ask for or what did they ask for? You know, you, t- you talked about listening to what the people want. So what were they asking you for? They were asking us for fruit trees, um, orange trees, lemon trees, they're asking us a lot for hardwood trees too. The fast-growing chen trees and sed trees, um, some of which, like the ones that grow straight up like a telephone pole that right. they can use for wood in the future. And they also use them for fencing. Uh, they, you know, fence around the outside of the crop lines with them to, you know, as a natural fence to keep the goats out of the garden gardens and also to, you know, stop erosion and stop wind, that kind of thing. So they're perfect border trees. And then, you know, all kinds of fruit trees, um, cashews, lava pin that we talked about, um, which is like a Haitian chestnut that comes inside of a breadfruit looking tree. 
you know, the breadfruit that has the big flesh on the outside and then it has that seed in the middle. So a lot of that, uh, coconuts, we've done some coconuts, but they cost a lot. So we need big donations to do a lot of coconuts. So they're like a dollar each to grow. A dollar each. Okay. Yeah. I like to buy the seed. It probably costs 50 cents just to get the seed from someone. Just to get that coconut to grow it again from someone is probably 50 cents US and then has to be in the nursery for a while before it can grow. Whereas the, the hardwood trees, you know, you can pick up thousand seeds off the ground in one swoop, you know. Right. And uh, the the mango trees, of course, are more expensive because you have to eat the seeds and then bring this, eat the fr- fruit and then bring the seeds to the nursery and plant them within a couple of weeks. That's why sometimes we just buy them from other nurseries. But uh, yeah, the, um, yeah, so one thing that happened back in 2011 is uh, my website got attention from an organization called Forest Nation. And Forest Nation is a company out of Europe um, that connects businesses with their corporate responsibility to help the environment with groups like mine um, to donate to, to donate to giving tree to growing trees, but they're a business. So they need to grow and incorporate more and more employees while helping people like, like the Haiti tree project grow trees and then helping the business take that responsibility, you know, get to have that um, environmental responsibility taken care of. So they only give us 10 cents a tree when they do that. And it becomes very difficult to do the education, to do, uh, to grow trees really well, to involve an agronomist in growing them, to, to grow the better, more quality fruit trees like the mango francique. When I accept donations from companies like this, they ask for 10,000 trees at 10 cents. And then, you know, this happened in 2012. And then we grew them and we distributed them. But, I had to use lots of Haiti Tree Project money, probably three times as much, you know, another 20 cents to get them demanded for, to get, you know, to send their agronomist out to the villages and find out who wants trees and who's willing to plant trees and, and who could help us transport these trees and talk to politicians and really market them all over the region to get those 10,000 in the ground. And a lot of times when you finish growing trees, there's no rain and when they're supposed to be. And so people don't want to dig in the dirt when there's not soft, when the ground's not soft. So that's a whole nother. Yeah. So, you know, this kind of push around the world is, is something that's huge right now. This push of companies of uh, companies that are quote unquote growing trees in Africa or growing trees in Haiti or, or Central America and, and giving that corporate responsibility credit to the corporations that they're doing business with. But then the people on the ground in places like Haiti are getting such a small amount of pay for what they're doing. And the trees only really get paid for, for a couple of months. And then who's going to grow the tree the rest of the time, you know, and who's going to pay for people to grow those trees the rest of the time. And whose responsibility is it to grow those trees? Is, you know, do we as foreigners want to pay Haitians to grow trees for the earth? Do we want to get into that? You know, that's a big question that I have. And 
it's happening whether I want it to or not, that people around the world are wanting to pay people like the farmer in Haiti to grow a tree for everybody so that we can all have cleaner air. So it's going to drastically change the culture of tree planting in Haiti and everywhere. And is is that your ideal vision or is that kind of your ideal goal or are you hoping that people are more inclined to kind of do it on their own? I kind of have that well, desire just to come the naturally. Chap- yeah, the chapter in my life now is that I can't really volunteer for the Haiti Tree Project anymore. I've been raising my kids when they were little and then substituting and doing it on the side. But it gets to the point where you have to have a regular newsletter. You have to have a lot of social media to get even the small amount of donations. And so I decided this year with the pandemic that I've got to figure out a way to do it full time. And I've been volunteering doing it full time. And um, so what's happened is you're kind of forced away from just accepting unallocated donations. Like, you know, the person who just wants to, you know, just give a Christmas donation. (laughs) You know, these kinds of donations are the kind of donations we need a lot of in order to really give the Haitian people what they deserve and what they want, you know, but then the money is really coming from people like, you know, these like green earth appeal and, and Patagonia and Timberland and all these companies that want to give a few cents per tree. That's where the money has to come from to make this grow into something bigger. And for me to start earning money from it, you know, I have to start accepting these huge grants and, for better, for worse, that's what's the the future holds, and um, I'm going to try my best to keep contacting more and more organizations that can come in and help. But um, the problem is they're all they're all giving very little per tree. But on the other hand, they're only asking for pictures of those trees, and they're not saying, and they can't say, well, after my ten cents we can't stop you from getting money for those trees again. And so that's kind of the future of, and it is the present too, of the tree growing business in the world is that one organization will give you 10 cents, but then you have to pay the farmer to go plant it now so that somebody else helps and then somebody else helps and somebody else helps. And there's a lot of participants involved and it can get hairy because then it looks like more than one company paid for those same trees again. And that can, right. yeah. So you know what I mean. So it's, it's not full cycle funding. It's just like the initial aspect to it. Yeah, is yeah. Like ten other steps that we need to pay for. Right. Like the trees need to be cared for for two years. So right now, a lot of companies are thinking, "I bought a tree. I bought a tree in Haiti. I sponsored a tree," and um, they think that's it. That that tree survived, and it's a mature tree now. <laughs> you know. So. Right. But there's an organization that I that I've met a couple of months ago called Green Stand, and they are trying to track all the trees in the world. That's their vision: is to put them all on the map. And of course, they're at the beginning stages. They're the they're using they're using an amazing technology that they've come up the open source technology, where they go around and send 
the farmer with their telephone around to take pictures of their trees using their app that they that they created. And the app will actually take those tree pictures, attach them to satellite data, you know, um, locate longitude and latitude data, GPS data. And then the picture of the farmer goes with it. It goes with that photo and it all goes onto the web. And you have, for example, the other day, a, f- a farmer took a thousand pictures of his trees in, or a hundred pictures of his trees in Haiti. And I have a picture of him. I have a picture of all thousands of his little seedlings that he planted this year. And they're on this website on the green stand, um, tree tracker.org website. And you can s- see their seedlings. And so this is kind of the future of what the tree business is going to look like where companies are going to actually need to prove that their trees exist and that they're alive. So I feel like I'm getting in at the very beginning of this amazing invention um, adventure in proving to the companies out there that these trees do exist today, um, that they're still alive. And, and the idea of growing a tree rather than just paying for a tree once is also the next chapter if you can fly drones over or take pictures and prove these trees are still alive then people can pay for that time of growth yeah yeah i mean it 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 feels like you know technology using technology using um you know i mean what we have you said open source they're using open source um uh i guess code or technology mm-hmm. but that's kind of the next step to get i guess larger brands and corporations involved and I guess it makes it a bit more more personal and it allows again going back to connection <laughs> it, it makes it there's a greater connection with seeing the tree versus just you know here's some money you know you do what you got to do yeah, but yeah, yeah having the pictures seeing you know it tells a story and people people want to be involved I mean that goes back to that again go back to connectivity people want to be involved in the story people want to see the seedling yeah people want to see the transformation yeah 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 it's, it's a beautiful idea yeah, and so Greenstand is solving the puzzle for me because, okay, I have all these organizations that want to give me a few cents. Okay, great, let's start a tree. And then Greenstand application is going to come in and let me take a photograph, and then somebody else can pay for a month of its growth or a year of its growth based on that photograph. And then somebody else can pay for the second year of its growth because actually what they're trying to do is have these, each tree is like a token that you can put in your wallet your virtual wallet and they can be bought and sold like money in your wallet. You can trade it and give it to others and get it back. And, and people all over the world can have your trees at a different time of their, in their development, pay for their growth. As they grow, different people can be responsible for that same tree. Go buy a cup of coffee and you're paying 10 cents for this, this one tree, this one month of its growth. So yeah, yeah that, that's an amazing idea. Or, or I'm thinking about um, those apps that like round up to the nearest dollar, and you can take that those that coinage, uh, those extra coins, and like donate it into you know, whatever you want, you invest it or donate this to somewhere specific. Yeah, that's a brilliant but way yeah. to get donations <laughs> rather than ask yeah, for a dollar. You just ask for the change on the <laughs> the rest of the dollar. <laughs> right, right, right. You, 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 you can pitch it to them. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, just 10 cents in your cup of coffee, you pay for this tree for the month. You know? What do you, th- what's the average cost of, of a tree over the, over two years? 
I've never tried to pay for a tree for two years, but Greenstan has, and they are they their idea right now is to pay a farmer five cents a month in places like Tanzania and Haiti per tree for two years. And then the tree should be able to grow on its own, survive. A lot of trees after six months, they don't need any help because they've passed that first dry season. They've survived it. And now they're strong enough to survive the future ones. And, you know, and so at five cents a month, by the time you get to the end of two years, you know, if you have 50 trees, you have $60. And that pays for what, like 12 days of labor? Do you think you put in 12 days of labor for those 50 trees? About that. So it's about the right amount of pay. I mean, for $5 a day kind of work, which is what is typical in Haiti right now. Um, Yeah, so, you know, of course, to start the seedling and to get that education and to just get it in the ground costs about 40 cents a tree if you're going to do it right, if you're not just going to you know, just grow trees and throw them at people, (laughs) you know, (laughs) hope that they come and take them from your nursery. Now, if people are really, really hungry for trees and they know that they're going to get that five cents a tree, they might just come and take the trees without me having to pay for transportation or education. They're just going to come and ask questions and want that tree to survive because they know if they put 500 trees in their property, they're going to have, you know, um, $600 after two years. So. And fruit and, you know, the, and, the and yeah, and then yeah. three and four or five years after that, they're going to have all the produce that it provides. Right. Right. So there's, this, are you seeing, mm-hmm. there's this law between the age of two years and four years where they're just, the trees are on their own growing, but they don't need any work. So it's that first two years that Greenstand's vision is to pay people per month. And, you know, they're excited to be working with the Haiti Tree Project to get trees tracked right now we just started so are are farmers using the seeds from the the plants and regrowing after that or are they always kind of coming back to to the the nursery in my 10 years of experience what happens is we have money and then we don't have money you know as the as an organization just because of how much effort i'm able to put into getting donations and how much people manage to to give us and what happens is we have a lot of trees for a while and certain communities get really used to having those trees coming at them every rainy season. And then when they see that we're not producing, they, they start to stress and they start to find resources on their own and they start to grow trees on their own. And yes, people do collect the seeds after we were there for years in one region and we did a nursery for years, people then started to do it on their own. And that was fascinating because we ran into like five, six, seven um, local organizations and just people in their backyards who had taken a lot of the bags that we had stored, the little seedling bags, and just distributed them. And we found them all over the place. <laughs> we never gave them away, but we didn't have the funds to, to grow anything. So we found them, you know, like our family gave them to a friend and then their friend gave them to a friend. And, and we found little nurseries popping up all over the place because all they needed was that plastic bag to grow the seedling in. And then they found their own dirt and seeds from nature. So, yeah. Is there something unique about that plastic bag or... 
Um, it's a seedling bag that you buy from the agricultural store. I believe it's got holes in the bottom of it. It's a certain strength and thickness. It's perfect for a seedling. Perfect size. It's a little tube, you know. It's like a tube sack with holes in the bottom. Okay. So with uh, with climate change, uh, you know, being a, a major issue, mm-hmm. what current issues do you see farmers facing in Haiti? And, you know, what are some projected issues that you're preparing for or discussing? Well, as you know, every time there's a lot of rain, then they lose a lot of their soil and it makes it that much harder for us to grow trees for everyone to grow trees. Um, this year, for example, we it, it's been raining so much this last couple of months, unusually so, that a lot of the seedlings that we promised to one of our companies, just the seeds just rotted in the bags because it rained so much. Um, whether we can attribute that to climate change, you know, it's, of course, there's a lot of climate change going on. But, uh, and then two years ago, I mean, a few years ago, there's there's always lots of hurricanes in the last 10 years. There's been really severe droughts. And the thing about droughts is that the people have to let their goats go when there's a drought. They have to let them go because the people themselves have to walk all day long to get that bucket of water for themselves to drink. And so they can't tie up a goat because the ground, everything's brown. There's nothing for them to eat. So they have to let them roam and hope they find something and come and, and collect them later. Uh, it's extremely challenging when there's a drought to keep trees alive. So we've lost a lot in those couple of years when the drought became so bad that we had to lose the animals, you know, let the animals go free because <laughs> normally people tie them up and keep the trees safe that way or put a fence around the trees. But, you know, and I have, have the r- rainy season been increasing, decreasing? Have they been stable s- since you, you've been doing, doing it's been the more and more unpredictable? Project? It's been more and more unpredictable. Okay. People tell me that um, it's not supposed to rain this much right now. We don't. In previous years, it's been well. We used to get rainy seasons in August, but we haven't had them for the last few years. You know, uh, August, October. You know, this this time of year, and uh, definitely the people are not used to. The weather changes. Sometimes it doesn't rain when it's supposed to at all, and then all of a sudden it rains in the middle of the summer. It It's very unusual weather patterns for the people there. We just guess when we're supposed to put seedlings in. Yeah. Right now we're aiming to do a lot of seedlings to get them in the ground before the end of March because traditionally April, May, June is when it rains a lot again. And if we can get them in the ground in March, they have a really high survival through the dry season to then come again for the rains in the, in October. So, yeah, this is a big push month for help. <laughs> yeah, the uh, the inconsistency is, um, I guess, rather in- inconsistency with weather and, you know, like you, you do the work, you do what you need to do, and it's just this constant unpredictable. Un- I guess unpredictability. Yeah. Um, you know, it, it feels def- it feels defeating, right? Like you put all this work in, yeah, and you know you're, you're trying to push forward, and then it's just like you know here's this unexpected week of rain that you, you you've never really seen before d- during your lifetime. Yeah. Um, so how, yeah. How do I guess how do you and how do farmers keep their sp- spirits up during during a rainy season or during untraditional weather? 
I mean, we've all read books about the days of the people out West going through long periods of drought and dust storms and how they just had to barely survive. And that's a constant life in the rural areas of Haiti is you, you just have to live when there's rain and hold on to your life as best you can when there's not. I mean, it's just, you just don't know what's going to happen. That's the hard thing about growing trees on a grant is you never know if you're going to be able to grow the 10,000 you promised. And you can't outright tell them that. All they just go to somebody else and, right. you know, all they really need is their pictures, you know. But that's why, you know, I, I'm really cherishing this vision of Greenstand because we're going to change the whole model of what's going on is that rather than rather than paying to start seedlings, we're going to pay for the seedlings already in the ground being, you know, starting to grow already planted, you know, and that tree now exists. It's not something that's just this tiny sprout in the tree nursery that never got a home. Green sand is creating a way for groups like mine to fund the trees to get demand and get out there in the world and actually find a home. Our, our push right now with the giving Tuesday is, um, help these seedlings find a home. There's pictures of my seedlings and Greenstand saying, you know, I like that. You know, help these seedlings find a home. And, and, and all these farmers are like, help us plant these trees. And, and yeah, it's brilliant because then the actual farmer who owns the tree is going to get some money rather than just the people working in the nursery to start them. Yeah. M more connectivity. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, so I want to talk about agroforestry. Okay. Or, excuse me, agroforestry a bit more. Yeah. Uh, I think your website is like the first time I've ever heard about it. So, you know, I'd love to learn everything and anything about it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, the way people grow trees in Haiti is, I mean, they know what they're doing. Ha farmers in Haiti, they know how to grow things. They're green thumbs. Everybody is. And... When we send our agronomist, John Neva, around, we just remind them on how big the canopy is going to be and how far apart to spread each kind of tree species. And we also remind them the importance of picking trees that they know grow in their region. Like if they grew up in that region, they know, well, mangoes used to grow here, oranges used to grow here. The big nago tree used to grow around the river. The acacia grows well. Like whatever trees they know grows there, we just remind them, those are the trees you want to get from our nursery. Don't go and try to grow something that's never grown in your region because the soil might not be right for your tree. Just to talk to them about things that they may not be aware of because they've never, you know, taken seedlings home. But um, people are really good at, at growing things that already grow on their land. So to answer your question, I mean, it's just a matter of tree spacing and reminding people to grow things that they know already grows in their land. And then the last thing is just to let people know that our goal is to have a forest canopy and that canopy can then provide us with the next stage of our vision, which is to help you guys do what you already want to do, which is grow things like coffee and cacao and things that are going to give you crash cops, spices, things that can be shade grown that need the shade to thrive. And so that's kind of our next stage is, okay, now they have all these trees in high variety, 
They might cut down that boisin and boise, the telephone pole, but there'll be all these other fruit trees that will provide the canopy as they let those grow back again, you know? So the next chapter is basically to, well, once they space them out, right? And then they they understand that their future is going to be smaller cash crops underneath, then they get it, you know? And, And not doing a monoculture is also a huge thing that costs a lot more money than most organizations want to spend that grow trees. But making sure we do a huge variety of trees um, of course, helps bring back the birds, helps prevent disease, and of course, any kind, all biodiversity is good for the environment. How does it help prevent disease? When you grow a monoculture, like if I were to grow like a mountain full of just boised, if one bug comes that likes those trees, that bug's going to be really happy and attack every single tree on there, and they're all going to die. Right. So, same thing with a fungus or any kind of tree disease. You know, um, it attacks one species of tree. And so you want to grow a variety. So whatever kind of um, problem that arises, it doesn't attract all that, the whole forest. So, and of course, the more variety you have, the more habitat you have for wildlife. And of course, the diet for people. So from presenting the initial idea, you know, to only having those 20%, of uh, people being interested. Mm-hmm. How do you, how do you see those figures now when you, I guess, do you like, do you go to n- new villages? Do you do more outreach? Do you feel, do, is there more, is there a larger desire? Is there more, are there more people willing to you know, hear out the, the message and the goal and the mission and who are willing to kind of support and be farmers? What I can tell you is that over the, that recently I've noticed there's a whole lot more push to take trees home. People are coming from all kinds of directions (laughs) to come and talk on the video when we're videotaping for, you know, for our media, social media. They're like, so so many more people are lining up to say, oh, we want this project. We want this project. You know, we we need more trees, more trees, more trees. People are starting to see the value in trees because they realize, you know, they're gone and they're a source of food that they don't have anymore. I would say things have transitioned into having a lot more demand. I mean, I've, again, that's kind of how everything starts off, right? People don't see the value until, rather a larger population doesn't see the value until the smaller group starts doing the work and starts, you know, seeing the the reward from, from that yeah, work. Yeah, like my nursery right now, like sometimes I have funding to give them 10,000 trees, sometimes I don't. And when I don't, they're just dwindling down almost nothing in the nursery and people are starting to get hungry for trees and it really ignites a spirit of, when are we getting these trees back? You know, our community is losing our trees. And, and that's just right. a big word that everyone, and so everyone tries to grow their own trees. So it really ignites culture when you're, when you're missing something. So. What, what did you study when you were in college? Is this, is this, is this within your realm or is this like a new, <laughs> or was this a new, a, a new um, creative passion you kind of just d- dived into? You saw there was a, a need and you just kind of met the, met the demand. I, I was good at studying biology. So I finished biology degree. Um, okay. I always thought about being a natural medicine doctor, but you know, the money and the, the, the amount that it costs and then how you'd be tied down to that for 30 years, trying to pay it off. <laughs> it wasn't my cup of tea at that age. So, so yeah, I ran off with the Nandamarga <laughs> universal relief team instead. Yeah. I, um, 
So yeah, no, I don't have a background in forestry. I, like I said before, like the farmers really know how to grow the trees. And when we're ready, we're going to add the whole cash crop system into it. And it's easy in my position to find all kinds of great educators in Haiti when I have the money to hire them to teach people and teach me what's needed next. And so at each level of the game, we just ask the experts what's needed next, the experts on the ground there, you know. That's great. It, it, it's, uh, it's nice that you don't consider yourself an expert. You're like, you know, I, I asked the experts. No, I, I, I'm just the, the middle person doing the work. Even the agronomists in Haiti, they don't know as well as the farmer who lives on their own land what tree will grow best there, you right. know? So. So outside of the, the Haiti Tree Project, um, you know, being a wife, being a parent, and your new job, what other passions or, cre- or creative work do you do? You know, um, if any. Being a mom, I mean, that's what I do. I mean, I'm, I wake up talking to my kids, listening to them, and then I get passionate about the Haiti Tree Project and about Greenstand. And then I go pick them up from school and get passionate about what they're doing again. And we go on an adventure, whether it's a weekend camping trip or just an hour in the woods before we come back to them doing homework and me working on the project. I mean... Right now with the pandemic, that's what it's like. We go adventure in the woods. In the summer, we would go canoeing a lot. And then, um, yeah, but I don't really have another big hobby that I'm working on other than just keeping the kids mentally um, engaged during this pandemic. You know what I mean? Yes. Yeah. yeah. Is going to the forest kind of is it for you is it kind of connecting with the the work the work of the Haiti tree project also or is it just a, a nice escape from from nature from excuse me a nice escape from just the chaos of everyday yeah, life yeah it's it's the one place where we can all go and know that we're allowed to be there and it's free and we don't have to worry about the pandemic and and we just have a lot of fun we climb on the trees that are falling down and we play in the water and we bring friends and, you know, the other day I took the kids mountain biking and there was this lake nearby that it had rained so much that the field was flooded. They spent two hours in 60 degree weather running around on this field that is flooded and riding their bikes in it. And that kind of thing we just love, you know? So, yeah. you know, we just, you know, I spent all summer taking them in the canoe in our kayaks we got our old, we have an old Ford Ranger truck and we put some old, you know, off Craigslist kayaks <laughs> into it. And um, when we get on the Noose River in Raleigh, outside Raleigh, it's 29 miles of in and out of, you know, you have stops along the way to get in and out of your canoe. And um, there's deep parts and shallow parts and rapidy parts. And it's just a free adventure that doesn't cost anything. And can spend and that's like the when we go in nature is really the only time my kids will spend time with each other in a positive way you know <laughs> i mean at home they're, they're you know not wanting to be bothered by each other and then at school at right, when right, at right. you know and then and then they have their own individual stuff they do at home and then it but in nature they they frolic you know they connect, right? And they connect. They play in the mud with each yeah. other. They race each other. They, 
get sided with each other about going down the rapids. And I enjoy all those things too. So it's my release as well. Just seeing them happy and them seeing me happy is how we stay happy. The three of us and my husband, he's more of a homebody. But, you know, <laughs> we spend time with him at home joking around a lot. He's a big jokester. So. As, he, as we yeah. talk, patients are right? <laughs> patients are jokes. <laughs> yeah, he doesn't really get the whole need to go on vacations. And <laughs> working is very important to him. So. Yeah. Yeah. I, yeah. I, I, I remember one time I decided when I was in Haiti for six weeks with the kids in 2015, I said, come on, everybody. I'm taking everybody to the beach. And we rented this big, we rented this pickup truck. And everybody I knew that could kind of feel like they're related to me, to the kids, you know, got in this pickup truck, hanging off all edges of it, you know. And it was interesting. I said, we're going to the beach. And they didn't bring a towel. They didn't look like they had bathing suits on. They were wearing things like jeans and high heels and they had their hair done pretty. <laughs> it was the biggest deal for them ever. We were going to go two hours away to, oh, I forget the name of it. If you're on the point of the peninsula in the south, Ponde, I forgot. I have to ask my husband, but it's just beautiful blue, blue water, white sand beach there that takes up a huge part of this. It's fascinating though that the culture there has so little to do with vacations and traveling that, you know, there's not this mentality of get your towel and your bathing suit. We're going to the beach. Yeah. So yeah. We're leaving town for a little bit, you know, we're going on a two hour drive just to kind of relax. Yeah. 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 But you know what I mean? Like they, they didn't wear beach wear when we got there, when we got there, um, everyone like ended up getting wet and ended up sharing the one towel that I had. <laughs> it was fascinating. <laughs> <laughs> but also the, the sun dries you, right? Yeah, it, yeah, yeah. I want to I'll, – I'll ask my mother this also. Um, but, you know, like it, having an extra spare towel, for some people it's a luxury. Yeah. Right? You know, it'll be a beach towel. Like, yeah, yeah. Fancy, it's fancy stuff over there. So, yeah. you know, you just enjoy the water and let the sun do the work. Or, you know, you're like you said, everyone's lo loaded up, loaded up on the truck. Uh-huh. And the wind and the sun will dry you off on the ride back home. Yeah, like, yeah, you'll yeah. be fine. <laughs> yeah. I mean, yeah, I, I didn't realize, you know, how little before I did these trips, you know, let's go, let's get in the truck and go to the big water spring up to the next village. Like these are all things people rarely did. And, you know, it's all about just day by day survival. I didn't have this extra money to go on these special trips. So it was super exciting for me to be with everybody on these trips. Yeah. yeah like I remember my, my parents periodically, you know, I talk to my parents about their life experience. So they, you know, they just kind of share random stories and mm -hmm. like going to the beach was like a full day adventure. For yes. them. You, know, you, you know, you wake up early, you go out and you spend the entire day there. Uh -huh. I remember the, the first time I went to Coney Island beach with my mother and father as a kid mm -hmm. and they, kept some of that uh, Haitian tradition with them. So we, we went to the beach and we had like like bowls of, we had like Haitian food. We had, right, we had dili, we had sauce, uh -huh. we had viand, we had all this stuff. And I'm like, this isn't what you do at the beach. <laughs> but it is. But, 
like, but for them, that is what you do at the beach. For them, the beach is, again, it's a whole day experience. So, you know, you're going to eat lunch. You're going to eat what you really eat for lunch versus, you know, being in a, here in the country, you know, we're eating snacks or we're drinking beer. I mean, granted, you know, they drink beer also, but, right. you know, we're eating finger foods because it's a, you know, you go to the beach for like a few hours and then, I, you know, I've had my fun or it's overcrowded and I'm leaving. But for them, it's like, nah, like we're here. We're going to post up. We're going to own this little territory yeah. for as long as we can. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We're going to have fun. Yeah, the yeah. women got up totally at 5 a.m. and cooked these big vats of food for everybody and right. brought it with us. When there's plenty of restaurants there that, yeah, it's true. I wasn't going to pay for everyone to go out to eat. So <laughs> <laughs> I paid for the car. That's it. But yeah. yeah you can't. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, like that's 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 the balance, right? You drive, you bring them there, and they give you food. Like that's yeah. the that's the balance. That's the bar, barter system. Yeah, yeah, yep. <laughs> so, when's the last time you you've been able to go to Haiti? Um, it's been two years now. Right before they closed it down, everybody started hiding in their homes, like a year and a half ago. Not from the pandemic, but from violence in Port-au-Prince. Yeah, like my. Mother watches YouTube, watches a lot of YouTube videos, a lot of YouTube news, and, you know, with, like, WhatsApp and all, you know, all this new technology allows it to connect with people a lot more. And, you know, again, it's hearing hearing the stories. And I think part of, from, from what my memory tells me growing up, you know, a lot of this violence has kind of always been there. It's just with the internet, with news media, there's just more access to it. There's mm-hmm. more stories. Mm-hmm. I, I've never been, unfortunately. Um, and I, we, we talked about this a bit uh, when, we, when we spoke a couple of weeks ago. Mm-hmm. And it's always, there's, there's never been the, a good time. There's always been moments where it's been planned, like, all right, we're going to go to Haiti this summer. And you know, I'll be excited. I'll be ready. And then something will happen. Um, and I, going back to you talked about your husband kind of feeling uneasy. Mm-hmm. And I, you know, I brought it up like that. That's kind of my my parents' mindset too. Like, it, is it really worth it? Mm-hmm. On one aspect, yes. You know, it's home. It's your, it's your mother country. It's so so much memory, so much love. Yes. But it it isn't growing. It it isn't changing from what you know. It's becoming worse. So right. You know, it, it creates that that disconnect that I talk about. And you know, again, even for myself, like when my parents aren't here, like, am I gonna have a con- connection with Haiti? Am I gonna be doing some type of relief work, um, my supporting people in communities mm-hmm. and my supporting cousins and aunts and whoever. I don't know. Cause I, I don't know how bad things are, are going to be and how bad things are going to get. And yeah. I mean, I, I constantly worry about the country and the state of the country. Well, I've heard that they're getting a new change of police now. So the chief of police is being turned over to a different hands. So hopefully things will start to turn around. Right. That's that's all there is, it feels like, at times. Yeah. I mean, these things go in waves, I think. So there's going to be periods where we can and can't go there. Right. Um, But, yeah, it's hard to say, is the kidnapping just in Port-au-Prince and not that big a deal? Because when I was there in 2004, 2005, 2006, and 2007, like – there was a lot of kidnapping a couple of those years in Port-au-Prince, but there was no problem at all where I was. And we just didn't think about it at all. We were completely protected by the villages around us who knew everybody and everything that was going on always. But um, we didn't go to Port-au-Prince and that's just, 
how it was. But unfortunately, you have to go there to get out of there to go somewhere else from the plane, you know. Right. Um, and that, you know, that leaves opportunity for people to follow you. I mean, you know, my, my mother always tells me stories. I mean, I, I remember growing up, my grandfather used to go to Haiti and I'd always feel anxious and worried mm-hmm. because, I mean, it was those years, 2004, 2005, where kidnapping was like a, a major thing. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. There's a saying in Haiti, uh, the cat doesn't jump over the fire because it has a tail. And so it's very hard for me to go to Haiti with kids in tow, you right. know. It's very easy for me to just go on my own and say, oh, I'll be fine. I'm just going to jump on one tax to the other. I'm going to be out in the province in one second. But when you put other people's lives in your responsibility to do that, it, it's a whole other big flag in your brain. Right. You know, my husband doesn't want to try it. I'm more of a daredevil. You know, let's just do it really quick. <laughs> you know, <laughs> get there on an early flight, jump in the car, straight to the province. Spend the no one will be in the streets. It's a perfect plan. Don't worry about it. I know, I know, but but then you know you watch the news and you get scared. So, what's your end vision, or what's your ultimate goal for the Haiti Tree Project? I'd like, well, what do you envision happening where you're like, we're we're in a good place, or this this is it? I hear you. I, I want to see. I want to be able to go to Haiti and all the villages that I've always visited there, and that are connected in that whole region from San Luis de Sur down to Cavallon. They have an endless amount of seedlings available to them to just blanket their lands with, you know? And, and then hopefully by the time I die, you know, there's going to be a forest there. And so people can once again have that, that my husband had when he was a little boy, you know, grow up and like throw the rock up in the mango all day long, as long, as long as he wants to and get food from all different sources and animals running around and not have to worry about eating the last <laughs> seedling on the ground. I just want there to be hope because there's a forest again. There needs to be a canopy. People need to live in a canopy there. And then they won't have to have the World Food Program coming in and constantly wrecking the economy as happening now. Um, that's a whole nother story though, right? I mean, my vision is that people don't have to depend on the outside because the trees will provide them with everything they need from water to shelter to food, soil. Self-sufficiency. Yeah, yeah. autonomy. Yeah, no more dependence on the outside. It's, it's a big challenge though, how to keep growing way more than you take away. Um, the whole problem of ownership of land in Haiti is, you know, it's another whole, it's how do you stop people from cutting? It's a, it's how, a whole nother, it's a whole nother subject. Well, that's the importance of the education really. Cause without the government stepping in and really making ownership of land, um, strict and clear there, there has to just be education. Well, the canopy has to provide, a reason to keep there has to be a reason to keep the canopy that's bigger than it is to cut it down. And that's why I feel like cash crops is the way to keep people from cutting down their canopy. If people are taught how to grow valuable foods that need shade, then there shouldn't be any cutting down, right? And that's what happens in other countries that are more developed, you know, in the Dominican they don't cut down. They have a lot of crops growing underneath the canopy of their trees. And I wish one day I can go there. I hope one day I can go there and really learn from them 
um, because they have the same species as in Haiti. Same species. Of Do trees. you know why mm-hmm. or what caused the the deforestation in Haiti? I, I, well, I don't remember. I'll tell you that. what's happening right now. My, I mean, imagine this is what's happening thirty years ago. My husband's father died a year ago, and he had twenty five kids. So. Yes, he outright owned his land and he had land boundaries and everything. And there's paperwork with his signature on it. So when he passed away last year, there's no will. I mean, everybody owns the land. All 25 of those kids own the land. Do they all have the same mentality to not cut down any trees that are there? And each one of those trees that's there would be worth $200. And when you only earn $800 a year (laughs) on average, right? If you're earning minimum wage in Haiti, if you're earning anything, you know, a dollar a day is more common. But like, uh, it's so easy to understand from that perspective. Well, 25 people own this one piece of land that's got 100 trees on it. Everyone's going to come in and take as soon as they can, because then if they don't, the other person will. So I think that's what happened over the last 30 years is an elderly person died and left it to a lot of the kids and the kids were living in Port-au-Prince that came home and got what they needed because they felt like they really needed it for whatever reason, whether it's healthcare or school for their kids or just overpopulation. And of course, sorry. No, it's okay. I was just going to say living in the moment again instead of seeing the the long-term value. Right. And it's a luxury to see the long-term, you know, when you're you're living on a dollar a day or your kids in Haiti need to go to the doctor and you can't afford it. And I mean, the kids in Port-au-Prince need to go to the doctor and you can't afford it. So you come home and take what you, what you know is rightfully yours by your parents, you know, home. But, um, of course, the huge drive for deforestation, just like in many places in Africa, is charcoal. You know, that's why it, the trees are worth so much because they cut them down and then they smother the wood underneath the dirt and it creates this charcoal that they can then use for cooking in the city. It's like $8 US for a big rice sack of charcoal, which can be about $200 a tree. Yeah. And then, of course, they can make wood and furniture and all those other products with it too. Right. If you could pair the Haiti tree project with another, um, I guess, type of organization that would further benefit the people of Haiti, what what do you think, what what type of organization do you think would be that, that isn't necessarily related to, um, I guess, forestation? I'm not sure I understand the question. I'm trying to think of the best way to to, to rephrase it. So out, outside of the Haiti Tree Project and the work you're doing with reforestation, mm-hmm. what other work would you what other work would you think is just as important to help and support the the, the, the Haitian people? I get yeah, I guess that's a good way to look at it. Yeah, I've always given a lot of respect to well, okay. Husbandry is a huge need in Haiti. I mean, people need meat and they need their animals to be healthy and they need to make advancements in how to 
create um, uh, how to how to raise animals that will produce more milk, how to take care of them better, how to uh, any kind of services and in helping people have a better um, stock of of goats and not really cows because they tear up the environment so much, but goats are a huge part of Haiti and. If they could get better goats and get goats that um, they can take care of in a way that, I mean, people just need more nutrition. And the eggs, they come from the, from the Dominican now. So supporting uh, education and how to mass produce um, eggs and having a chicken factories in Haiti, not in the way that we're thinking in the U.S., but just something that works for them so that they can become theirs again. There basically needs to be industries brought back to Haiti. There used to be a lot of rice in Haiti. And now there's very little. You can still find rice, pay, like native rice but and beans, but it's just, you know, um, getting the World Food Program out and supporting the farmers, figuring out how to bring back their own industry is huge. They used to have a cement industry when I was there, and now they don't. It comes from Dominican. But the other aspect uh, beyond like nutrition, I would say orphanages, orphanages from a lot of churches in the United States and from all over do a huge service for the lost children there. There's, there's a huge problem with overpopulation and, and orphans and the rest of X. And yeah, so a lot of kids are being raised in orphanages. And for better or for worse, I mean, they're being raised in a way that's positive, I think, a lot of times. And I mean, what do you think? What is your favorite um, form of aid for Haiti? Right now, I'm thinking about, I was thinking about you, you brought up the orphanage, mm-hmm. orphanages, and just thinking about, you know, me being number nine of my father's children. Mm-hmm. And you, know, you said your husband had 25, mm-hmm. uh, or t- rather 24 other s- siblings. Mm-hmm. Um, we don't really know. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah, I mean, there's, <laughs> on, on, on my side also, there's a tenth, potential 10th child. That, um, <laughs> yeah, there's a potential 10th child. <laughs> but he, he looks very different from the rest of us. Like uh, everyone, I think I've seen the majority of my half-brothers and sisters that need like pictures the majority of us are darker skin, and I think the alleged tenth child—he's he's light—he's lighter skin. Yeah. So this um this this doubt <laughs> that he's my father's <laughs> child—that's that's, that's the best way I can say it. Um. Oh God, I mean, I I can't even think of one because everything is feels so intertwined. I mean, there's foreign foreign influence. I mean, even going back to your point on autonomy, you know, in order to have autonomy, we need foreign influence to not be part of it, not be part of the country. I mean, it, you know, it's been that way since the, the slave rebellion and the slave rebellion victory. Yeah. Um, I, I honestly don't even know. I don't know. Yeah. Education, education. Um, yeah. I'm a... I'm pessimistic about reality and I'm hopeful <laughs> about the future. Right. So, you know, I, I see what things are. I, I try to understand all the different layers involved and it makes me feel like, defeated. <laughs> I, I, I used the word defeatist earlier. It's so complex, but, isn't it? 
Right, right. But the hope aspect is just finding that one thing, and and maybe maybe this talking this out will kind of get me get me to answer your question. Mm-hmm. So the hope is finding one thing and knowing that I can't be responsible for everything, and one person, no one person can be responsible for all the all the issues and layers. But having that hope allows you to kind of find that one specific. Um, passion you want to invest your time into for you it's the haiti tree project right, right. For other people it's um you know for my mother it's you know sending the the, the the drum down there and you know allowing them to be their own you know have their own little have their own business and sell mm-hmm. whatever they need mm-hmm. to my initial answer is maybe christianity mm-hmm. I, I, t- I have a huge issue with christianity and what it's done to black nations as a whole mm-hmm. um I don't. I don't know. I, 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 I have to think about this. <laughs> I'll get back to you. <laughs> yeah. yeah. What's, what's the one thing I would? Or maybe it'll, maybe it'll come to me before we wrap. Yeah, for me, I mean, I, I would want to do faith. Yeah, for me, it's. I mean, trees is always one way far ahead of the rest because it just encompasses everything. I mean, this the spirituality you get from walking through a forest. Is so much stronger than you get from walking through an area that's been completely environmentally devastated, which is what they experience now. But their parents didn't experience that. And if they could have that back, like the kind of person people would become, if they had that shade around them, how much more peaceful they would be, not to mention all the basic needs they would have met from those trees. And it's m- more empowering to see the new growth than to have always had it. Right. Yeah. Right. And hopefully they won't forget their history next time around. <laughs> right. I mean, you know, that, that ties in with, with like you said, the, the photos and making that connection of, you know, have again, having that story to tell rather. Yeah. Uh, so what are some things that we as everyday people can do to support not even support. Well, to support, yes, but also help the environment and, you know, decrease our carbon footprint and just do, do, do less damage. Yeah, I think because people like us in the United States, we earn U.S. dollars, that we should all be giving a significant amount of that, whatever that is, to regrowing the forest and the world. Because it's very hard for us to live at a net zero carbon output without doing that because even if we live minimally you know even if we drive a little bit and we use our cloth bags um, to go to the grocery store and we try not to you know take all the freebies that are out there that ends up consuming a lot of trees if we just live minimally it helps but is that enough i mean could we just put in 30 cents a tree if we just grow. I mean, if people just gave $5 a month to an impoverished country to grow trees, they would actually, by the end of the year, it would calculate to the average output of a car, of the carbon that a car puts out is how much the trees would take in in one year, you know? So like if you want to cancel out the effects of your car, just $5 a month would do that. Talking about a mature tree, of course, when they're seedlings, they're not taking all that in. So maybe it would be, you know, $5 a month when we're talking about a more mature tree. But, 
you know what I'm saying? Like, let's say it's $15 a month. That would definitely cancel out your carbon use for just your car. But then what about your house and your, and you can't, our society earn, uses 26 times more resources than the average person in the world. So how do we balance that? How do we give back so that it's fair? <laughs> are you are are you aware of any 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 way to calculate our output? Because like, you know maybe having having that easily accessible again, like maybe something as simple as an app where you just like, this is what I do on average, just how far I drive on average, just how often I wash dishes, how long my shower is, et cetera, et cetera, and then it just tells you, okay, this is what you can do to kind of offset. Are you aware of anything that exists? Like Off that. the top of my head, I don't have a particular website or organization that does the best job, but when you Google it, you can easily, like I've done it several times over the years, just Google different statistics, like that statistic about $5 a month, you know, 30 cents a tree, right. $5 a month equals this in the average car. Um, you can do that for your house or for, you know, whatever it is, you can look it up and figure it out. But no, I don't have an actual website in mind or organization or app. But that's okay. something that would be good to put on the website. How do you stay hopeful with everything going on? Um, oh, the Haitian people. The- <laughs> <laughs> I just get on the phone and they're like, oh, thank you so much for being with us. Thank you so much for bringing the project. Oh, what would we do without you, Kadana? This is wonderful. You know, the the... The thousand trees you gave us last month, um, so many people are going to benefit from them and we're just so happy and, you know, and all I spent was, you know, a hundred dollars sometimes, you know, for a whole month and, and they're just so thankful and so encouraging. And there's like three people who call me constantly and it just keeps me focused. All right. Um, any closing points, anything additional that you'd like to add or mention before we close out? Yeah, I mean, um, this new age of looking for ways to help grow trees in the world and bring back the Earth's forests. I mean, I would just recommend to people who are looking for ways to help to try to find organizations that are truly planting the trees, that you're truly paying for trees to be actually planted in someone's home and not just grow the seedlings because, you know, there's a lot of seedlings being grown around the world by donations and them get past the nursery and get past that first season of growth. And um, to just be smart about who you're donating to, you know? And yeah, um, the world is changing. We're going to be able to see everything we're doing soon just by opening up the maps. The Google Maps is going to show us all the trees one day. <laughs> And where your trees are and where my trees are in our own little virtual wallet. So, yeah, it's exciting. It sounds, like I said, it sounds very exciting. Again, that, that the connection, the connectivity, and being able to feel like you're, you're, you're part of the story, part of the growth. You yeah. Know, it changes, yeah. It changes perspective. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, hopefully um, the future is what a green stand and the Haiti Tree Project are working towards, which is actually paying people to grow their trees for the first two years of life, not just hand out trees, but actually pay people to grow them so that we're all participating in our future supply of oxygen and clean air. 
you know, from these fast growing tropical trees. Yeah. So I, I think I have an answer for your question. Yeah. <laughs> oh, it's, 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 uh, yeah. Um, it, it's it's going to be very vague though. Okay. <laughs> I can't. <laughs> um, I'm envisioning something. All, all, the base is kind of education. I, I feel that overall, my belief is that when people feel empowered as individuals, when they have resources as individuals, they're more inclined to do more for themselves, which in turn allows them to do more for their community. Mm-hmm. So that's that's kind of the, the base of where I'm at. I'm not sure in what capacity. Mm-hmm. Um, so maybe just f- finding a way to further education and keep Haitians up to par with uh, this technology in the world. Like I know, um, I think last year there was a Haiti Tech Summit I think it was the first one. Mm-hmm. There was supposed to be a second one this year, but because of COVID, it got canceled. And I think they only did it online. So maybe, you know, something, granted that, you know, the Haiti Tech Summit is something that's huge and large, and I'm not sure how it really trickles down to the everyday person. But yeah, I'm, I'm just thinking about some something along the lines of being able to provide more resource and education so that people can be innovative and create and just, I guess, have more hope and not think or not focus so much on the present, but be, yeah, become more aware of the long-term effects, yes. you know, maybe yeah, a little bit of sacrifice and granted, you know, I mean, the Haitian people have sacrificed a lot yes. since their history, but change requires that always, unfortunately. Yeah. And you know? the, so the knowledge that we have in our country about, technology to use to survive is i mean it's just going there and just being amongst people you realize the things that they're not aware of that would help them so much simple things like you know what there's microbes in the water that are making you sick and if you just pass your water through this bowl of sand you'll be fine you won't have all these rashes on your body you won't have a bellyache and to bring that awareness i mean it's it's huge. And it's, you know, I love water filtration as well. I guess it's my number two, <laughs> you know, water education, <laughs> water filtration, teaching people how they can take care of themselves and be so much right. more healthy. But yeah, technology, I mean, they're still using the the village where my, where my husband's from. They still use those. Um, they have the big wooden handle turning and it goes, it presses the flower, the white French flower, you know, the white flower through the the churn like handmade and then it pushes it flat and it's like this big machine that's all made out of wood and they just manpower turning this big wheel all day long and then they take the flaps that cut out from it and put it in the stove in the big um the big clay oven yeah for their everybody's bread so let's you know things are still very simple there yeah, I'm even thinking about like generators, like, you know, my mother texting me saying, oh, you know, the power went out, the generator is off. Yeah. So inverters, solar panels. Right. 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 Yeah. Actually, I'm trying to get my kids to um, look into as a project before we go to Haiti again to look into doing research on a, an affordable little solar panel with batteries and then have them go and, well, at home here, learn how to put them all together and wired around the house and put light bulb led lights on it. And I thought that they could then go to Haiti with that, like a kit for each house to wire nice. up a solar panel and a few lights. Yeah. Wow. That's dope. In 2015, they're still using 
car gasoline in their house at night for lighting when I was visiting people there. It, you know, I, I always think about, you know, the, the significance of being like the first black safe slave rebellion and, mm-hmm. you know, the empowerment from that story. And even for myself, like just learning that as a, as a, as a child and how it changed my perspective on what it meant to be Haitian, mm-hmm. uh, Haitian American, how, you know, however I, I identified Mm-hmm. Well, I've identified in a given time. Yeah. And, you know, just seeing the, the end result, like at, you know, we got it, but at what cost, um, you know, there's still so much more to do and there's still much, still so much more to learn, so much more to, so much progress, so much more progress to be made in terms of just advancing the the culture of the country. I mean, you know, the po- po- politically it's been in turmoil also. And it, you know, it goes back to all the different layers that we talk about. Yeah. You know, there's, there's politics, there's food, there's farming, yeah. there's the trees, there's yeah. water, <laughs> so many different things. And you know, you brought up the Dominican Republic earlier. Mm-hmm. You know, one you know, one nation away, same island, same same climate, yes. literally the same everything. Yes. And they have the ability to, to thrive. Yes. You know, what's 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 the What's what's the deciding factor that that allows one side to thrive and another one not to? I know. Um, yeah, I know. I know. I mean, it, if I were to do something for the farmers of Haiti that want to reforest, I would send them to the Dominican for the month and let them study how they, you know, do their agroforestry there right. and collect and, and, and that information and those seeds and all that technology and bring it back. Right. And I, I say this respectfully, you know, if the if Dominicans are willing to help, because, you know, there's always that uncertainty and tension between um, Haitians and Dominicans. Yeah, yeah, that's true. Yeah, I got, I learned that. It's probably my, one of my first experiences with racism was my husband getting in the, in the bus with me to go across the border from Haiti to the Dominican. And it was fine that he was in the bus with me, had his passport and everything, and it was fine for the first 30 miles inside the border on the Dominican side. But once we started to go further, we were going all the way to the other side, to the other side of the country. And everybody was just flat out mad that somebody with that skin color, his dark skin color, was going to be able to go further than the border area. Right. And there was right. just a lot. And luckily, he didn't understand Spanish. I do. He didn't know Spanish, and so he didn't realize what was going on. But I did. The bus driver kept saying, "What? You know, what's up with you know dark skin going further east?" So it was amazing. Yeah. You know, it was just flat out like there is the whole co- the whole bus was talking about him, and I had no, I didn't say anything at the time anyway. Right. What to do? So- <laughs> yeah, what 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 to do? <laughs> I mean, luckily, you know, we didn't have any actual, you know, anything that actually like, happened. We had a great yeah. time in the Dominican. You know, we rented a car. Sometimes that's all it is. Places, and we studied the salt mines together because that's one of the projects we were working on, and um, brought that knowledge back to Haiti. So, what are the the salt mines? Um, I mean, I know what they are, but I guess in terms sure. of the the knowledge and the information that you bring back to them. Well, when I went to Haiti, they they were like ponds in Haiti. They basically let the water in, and then the water sits. And eventually, if you're lucky, you'll get clear salt off the top after some you know 
the the sun dries it out and eventually you get a clear salt but the salt in Haiti is pretty dirty and that's just the Haitian salt and it's cheaper because they don't have the technology well the education really it's not really technology they don't have the education to run the water through different stages of processing through different levels of water through different fields in the in the basically in Dominican you have this huge flat of sand flat beach that has um shallow pool after shallow pool after shallow pool and one's released after 15 days and other ones released after 40 days and the water runs at certain levels and certain depths and by the time you get to the end of like a five layer process you get this nice clean pure white salt that's just pure in NACL and then they collect it and put the iodine on it and it becomes a perfect product for anywhere in the world sea salt and it and you know we're like wow there's they just have a technique no technology really just a technique and you know when i was there we did our best to help the farmers at least the the, the salt mine workers in Haiti at least start that process and they're trying to connect their pools when i left after a few years they were still working on it but when i left they were working on turning all the single pond farmers into having a connection of a cooperative where they had to work together to do that processing and now they have sold a more white salt in Haiti from this part of of you know what the anandamarga team did there which is pretty exciting um not sure how successful it's been. I haven't kept up with the news, but I know they did start selling the salt from there to export it to other places as sea salt. That sounds amazing. Wow. Yeah. It's, uh, I mean, again, you know, every, every little bit, everyone's individual passion of work, you know, helps mm-hmm. to you know, pu- push the whole culture f- forward. Yeah. That's what we can do. Yeah. 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 Another very important project people could donate to is mangroves mangroves all around the world um, to help regrow the trees that live right on the, on the, on the coast, you know, cause that's where a lot of fish thrive. There's the coral reefs and then there's the mangroves along the coasts where people have cut down the trees right out of the water to go fishing and catch the fish easily, but actually the trees need to be there for the fish to live. <laughs> Education. Right. So regrowing them in the water is a huge challenge. You have to have these special buckets and keep, you know, it's, it's not easy. So it costs a lot to regrow them, but it's happening. And we all part, need donations <laughs> to get it going. Right. right. I, I want to imagine that, that Edu- the education was there that there wasn't aware there was some type of an, uh, an awareness not to do these things and that and maybe at some point um you know either culture gets lost or i mean is it people just not caring anymore is it going back to the idea of just needing to live in a moment because if, if the trees were able to kind of live this long then I, again i want to believe that the community members knew you know, we need we need these trees here. We need this here because it supports this long term. I think. Have you had any experiences with that at all? Or even well, understanding that? I mean, my first thought from what I think was what you're getting at is that why do people do this to themselves, right? Yes. At what point does it become them doing that? 
At what point so, do they actually start to cut down the trees? I mean, it's I the guess, people that don't you know, live in in the countryside that come back from the city to cut down the tree and then go back again with it. Got it. Got it. Okay. You know, because yeah, I mean that's or there's some sort of connection to the city that requires cash. You know, and um, it's the elderly people that end up staying in the countryside. All the young ones are gone, except for right. vacations. They come back, and then of course they see the, <laughs> the value in the trees. <laughs> so, and then, then there's no one to pass on the knowledge or the the farmland to. Yeah, right. I mean, talking to the old people, you know, they they really regret having allowed this to happen. But they also felt like, you know, they didn't have any control. And then, of course, people pass away and then there isn't a common feeling that we need to work together to protect it. Right. And then, of course, the poverty. I mean, when people are hungry, they just take what's in front of them, whether it's the mangroves. There needs to be, I mean... In Cuba, I mean, have you ever traveled there? Probably not, uh, right? Because <laughs> it's been closed off. I went to Cuba and it was just such, so much government control that all the ecosystem was intact, completely intact. Wherever they wanted it to be intact, it was intact. You know, the you, you're in this island and you can't find a fish dinner because you're not allowed to fish. There's only a few fishermen in the country, and those fish go straight to the restaurants that bring money to the government to then go ahead and protect everything again. (laughs) You know, everybody's job is divvied up, and there's only a certain number of fishermen, and nobody else is allowed to fish. A lot of people come in from other countries to go to the resorts on the edges of the the sea there, and um, there's little islands and things that are tourist trap, like really good tourist places that have really pristine nature and um, people come there and they pay for that lack of exploitation to see the amazing wildlife. So what's the balance? I mean, yes, Haiti needs the government to reach out in all areas of the country and protect land, create protected forest land more, create protected uh, mangrove land, create better infrastructure in every way. I mean, yeah, the teachers. I mean, I could go on and on. <laughs> the teachers in Haiti. I mean, the teachers. Oh my gosh, they would get paid once every six months. They would go out and farm when it rained and just leave the kids in the classroom by themselves. Wow! Because there's just not any income. Because the government's not paying them for whatever reason. The salary is just not coming. Yeah. And on that note, <laughs> yeah. Sorry, note, sorry. Yeah. No, no, no. It's, it's not even that. It's just like it's the um, the, the pessimism about reality, right? It's the like, like, damn. This is just you know, this is just the reality of what's going on. And yeah, you know, looking to tomorrow to stay hopeful. Yeah, to find solutions. Yeah, I mean, there's a huge, and you know. Within the tree growing world, like my way of growing trees is to give them to people to grow for their own homes so that 
in 10 years they have, though in six years they have food for their family, you know, and they've protected their own land because that's the way Haiti works is this is my land. I'm working on my land and there isn't really a lot of community ownership. So whereas other projects around the world are putting a forest in one spot. And when you do that in Haiti, it just, it's, it's very challenging. So, I mean, what's unique about the Haiti tree project is the fact that we give to lots and lots and lots of different families to the, do their own forest and growing all in one place often means that nobody's taking care of it. And also if it's all in one place, only one person gets it, you know, it's not a a shared, it's not food that everybody gets. So it's something to think about. Do you only have one nursery down there? We have two locations that can grow any number of trees when we have the money to grow whatever number of trees that we want to do. I mean, there's enough demand now, like I said, and we could grow 100,000 trees a month because I have two locations that have water year-round. I mean, this month we're going to grow 10,000 in one location. And, you know, as the we come out of the pandemic, I have a few organizations that are trying hard to get more um, tree donations of trees, you know, uh, donations for trees. So hopefully we'll be growing. I mean, my goal is to grow 300,000 a year for the next few years in these two nurseries. But yeah, we can grow any number of trees, really, because we have water year-round. Yeah, and we have the manpower and some good workers, good people. Just need more consistent donations. Yes, ongoing donations. Yeah, Yeah, the month-to-month is so helpful because, you know, obviously we can plan for the future when we know if someone's giving every month $10 or $20 or $30 rather than one time $100. You know, although that helps. <laughs> right. <laughs> and on that note, I'd like to end this episode of the Live the Love podcast, PEDs, Positive Enriching Discussions. I'm your host, Clifford Janice. You can find me on IG at Gulps Conditioning. I'd like to thank my guest, Karen Nicholas. Is it Nicholas or Ni- Nicola? Nicola. Uh-huh. I'd like to thank my guest, Karen Nicola. Karen, can you tell the people where they can find you or the Haiti Tree Project? Yes, the Haiti Tree Project is, it starts with the word the, so you have to write thehaititreeproject.org. And that's it. Yeah. So where you can find us, you can find us on LinkedIn or Instagram or Facebook. But our website has all that connection. You can listen to the Live, Live, Love podcast on SoundCloud, Google Play, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and YouTube. Be sure to like, subscribe, share. And if you visit the Live, Lift, Love podcast on the Gold's Conditioning website, please be sure to leave a comment. Until next time, peace.